This podcast is supported by an unrestricted educational grant provided by Merck & Company, Incorporated. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Paula Ferrada on the topic of Clostridium difficile. Dr. Ferrada is Professor of Surgery, Surgical and Trauma ICU Medical Director, and Surgical Critical Care Fellowship Director at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. So uh, before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? No disclosures. I know that at your SCCM talk, you said that you had a lot of things you were very passionate about, so I'm hoping that you will bring that out as we talk. Um, In your opinion right now and in the opinions of experts, what's the current medical recommendations for C. diff treatment? Right. So the new um, guidelines came out in 2018. Um, and, um, you know, we are familiar how to treat it. The, I think the new things that the guidelines uh, um, highlighted is that flagell is not a first um, line treatment anymore because there's uh, a lot of resistance to it. Um, that um, it, then vancomycin, 120 milligrams per mouth, Q6 hours are is the first line right now. That um, uh, all the you know we used to have several um, uh, sub uh, categories of fulminant disease uh, like severe, severe, um, complicated, or CDF associated disease, and so many um, uh, things that that actually were defined as one thing and complicated thing. So they simplify it as anybody that has a Y-con higher than 15 and that already has uh, an organ um, a failure is a fulminant CDF that includes um, a toxic megacolon. So um, that is also new. And for that, um, uh, the treatment recommendations have not changed. The uh, uh, best um, medical treatment, most aggressive medical treatment is high dose vancomycin per mouth and per rectum with um, uh, also flagell IV. Um, uh, that they did not go through um, the surgical recommendations. As I, I said in my talk, I think part of the reason why the consults to surgery come in a little bit later when um, I think it's sometimes too late for the patient to recover physiologically is because of the lack of awareness that this is when it gets this bad, it's a surgical disease. So uh, when you have a patient in your intensive care unit that develops C. diff, even though it looks like it might not be the cause of everything that is happening or even though there's many other things involved or maybe the Y-con is not that high yet, um, it, that will be the time to get surgery involved because when we work together, um, a infectious disease surgery uh, intensivists, we um, the one the, the the person that wins that has the highest winnings is um, are the patients. Um, Right. So um, for surgical treatment, we recommend if the patient is not anuric. So if you are in multi-organ system failure, but your patient is not anuric or doesn't have a, um, a horrible contraindication such as um, intra-abdominal compartment syndrome or the self-destruction, doing a lupuliostomy and washing the colon with golaili intraoperatively and instilling that um, uh, vancomycin uh, uh, into the colon um, uh, actually could, um, it has been shown in some series to decrease uh, mortality compared with total colectomy. Now, total colectomy is still the uh, gold standard for the treatment of fulminant C. diff. Um, and anybody that has a piece of colon that is dead or is perforated or is toxic megacolon or, you know, right now the patient's 
is like too much to the other side. Like almost um, patient is nearly dying that they have one shot and one shot only of getting out of um, shock, then perhaps not taking the risk of doing a surgery that also could fail um, probably will be wiser. Um, I think uh, we often, surgeons often get called um, at the bedside with these patients with fulminant C. diff um, when, um, you know, the cat is already out of the bag, when the patient is already super sick and many, like three pressers uh, uh, on uh, renal replacement um, therapy on a ventilator. And at that point, not even maximal medical treatment has started. Um, Sometimes we would choose to say, start maximal medical treatment first before we offer an operation because we know by that time uh, surgery carries and depending on the series what you read but from 30 to 80 percent mortality so at that point then the conversation with the family will be you know uh, your significant other is really really sick and um we could do maximum medical therapy and observe from 24 to 72 hours before doing surgery because surgery will put him at a very high risk of dying and then you know we need to also keep in mind that not everybody needs to die with a scar in their belly if this is already um a such a great prognosis and the patient has you know, every every system is failing and we think that he's going to die on the table, then um, bringing palliative care on board to um, address these things with the family. These patients get really, really sick really fast. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. And I think that um, a, things that have been proven in the literature and by personal experience to improve the patient's outcomes is working together as a team you know, uh, don't be afraid to have that conversation with the surgeons and also surgeons being um, nice and collaborative with their uh, and um, non-surgical colleagues in coming to see one more consult. Um, it's not a big deal if that one more consult is going to help some, save somebody's life. So you raise a lot of really interesting questions there. And I think one of the ones that I'd like to start with is how do we teach our fellows and our residents to consult early? What are the things that they should be thinking about uh, and for the practicing provider as well uh, to get that surgical consult in when it's going to be the most beneficial to the patient? I, I could not agree more. I think that these are soft skills that we are not. Um, so there's a bun- there's a lot of in terms of clinical and 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 data. There's a lot of literature that has different scoring systems. None of them is perfect. But in terms of the emotional and and the uh, and the um, and then emotional intelligence and the preparedness of uh, fellows and residents when they graduate to understand that um, it's not uh, is really not a race and it's not a competition of who knows more or who diagnoses first or who does a better job, but it's actually the combination of each one of our specialty skills, the one that makes this very sick patient survive, and that we that that we only achieve that by working together, by giving each other the benefit of the doubt, by being open uh, that to the fact that everybody has a different level of expertise. And I think that is really hard to teach. I think that um, uh, what has helped in our institution 
we we also had the problem at some point that we didn't get consulted in these patients until too late. So um, what we did is we created um, several strategies. We started having more collaborative conferences because I think it's easier to build bridges when somebody... uh, you know, looks at the other person's eyes and shakes a hand and knows that that is a person that actually has the best intention for the patient. Uh, and the other thing that we did is we created a protocol in which we have a um, order set. Uh, we use the electronic medical record. When you type C. diff and uh, it describes you, <clears throat> I talked about this also when uh, at the Congress, you have describes what um, non-severe disease is and it describes what fulminant disease is. And when your patient is um, <clears throat> when your patient um, meets the criteria for fulminant disease, immediately prompts you to call infectious disease and to call a surgical consult. Um, and, and that has helped. And it, it has, you know, surgeons were concerned that they were going to have too many consults. It has not increased our consults that much, but I think it has made it easier for those patients, you know, for us to be involved earlier on and try to avoid surgery. The point is not to do surgery on all of these ones, right? The point is that is try to put our heads together so we can avoid surgery. Or if we do surgery, do surgery fast enough so we can either preserve the colon or, or, or at least preserve the life. And what's been the feedback from the intensivists and the infectious disease doctors to that collaborative practice? Very positive. I think that the infectious disease doctors are, um, they're very, um, at least here at VCU, they're very um, involved in critical care at many levels with transplant and with our um, antibiotic stewardship and um, in prevention of infection. Um, and I think the intensivists, uh, not only surgical intensivists, but medical intensivists, they're always very grateful to have more people around to help to help us, you know, um, these patients are sick. There's sometimes there's no right answer. There's a lot of medicine, and especially in critical care, that is evidence based. But there's a there's still a component of art. Sometimes you take decisions that where there's not enough data to tell you one way or the other. And uh, and I think the more brains you have involved in those type of decisions, the better. That's that's uh, awesome to hear that you guys have been able to build that collaborative practice and that uh, EMR uh, order set seems like a, a real key to driving that uh, behavior. Has there been any uh, negative feedback about using the electronic medical record to drive consults? No, I think it was, there has not been negative feedback after the implementation. Before the implementation, I think because everybody, you know, human nature is uh, uh, fearful of change, right? So a lot of people were concerned that we were going to have too many consults or ID was going to get called too many times. Uh, the, the issues that we have right now is when that order set is not used. So sometimes the patient comes to emergency room and the diagnosis is C. diff is uh, obviously, retrospectively, all of diagnoses are a little bit more obvious than prospectively. So sometimes these patients come and the diagnosis is not as obvious and it's not made until it's too late. Um, and then the yeah, order set was never initiated. Sometimes these patients, you no, know, at the beginning, they can present with diarrhea, but when they're too sick, um, the diarrhea stops. 
uh, the colon uh, stops moving because he's dying. And, uh, and, and if they present at this stage, making the diagnosis of CDF is a little bit more difficult. They present with a um, very distended taking colon and not having any diarrhea at all. So proving that these patients have CDF is uh, harder. And um, sometimes they, or the order study is never initiated. And then we discover that they have CDF when either the colon is out or in an autopsy. Yeah, it's always uh, worse for the patient when the, the diagnosis is made after the fact. Um, I was wondering if you could ex- describe a little bit about the surgical uh, techniques that you talked about uh, early on in the treatment uh, and the, the rationale between choosing uh, colectomy versus a loop ileostomy and uh, washing of the bowel with vancomycin directly. Right. So a few years ago, um, uh, Brian Zuckerbram in um, uh, UPMC um, uh, published about this technique, basically um, taking a loop ileostomy and uh, so you place the patient in lithotomy, you place, you um, create a loop ileostomy. He described it laparoscopically. Some people can do it open. I, I don't think there's a difference in how you get to it. Um, a, um, and then uh, washing the toxin out of the colon with golightly and then placing the vancomycin enema in high dose directly in the colon. And in their series, they decrease mortality from 50% to 14% or something like that. Um, and then afterwards, so Pittsburgh have their mind made uh, in their mind. That's, that's what they do. Convincing surgeons of actually um, uh, doing one procedure or the other when they're really too sold on one way or the other is really hard. So we tried to do a prospective multicentric um, a randomized trial. Uh, the uh, the principal investigator from that was Mark Demoya when he was at MGH, and um, and VCU was part of it. And we couldn't get enough patients because everybody already thought that they knew better, and then they would do one or the other. So then, therefore, I, um, with the uh, support of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I had written a guideline before on this for East as well. So, but um, then we created a multicentric uh, retrospective trial to see what, at least let's see what other people are doing because we cannot change practice just because of, because of one center's experience. And in all disclosure, I, um, because we were early adopters and we had, a, we had a couple of patients where ileostomy fail. And when it fails, it's really bad because those patients are really, really sick and they have one shot only, right? So my bias into the, into the uh, studies that I thought I was going to find that it was either the same or, um, or that we were going to find recurrences that we didn't know. Uh, but... Uh, that being said, we found that um, the mortality actually was worse. Well, the, the blood loss was worse with total colectomy, which is obvious because it's, it's way more involved to take the mesentery of the entire colon and it takes you longer to do it. And the resuscitation of the patients involved more crystalloid um, and um, the mortality was worse. And it was significantly worse. The mortality was worse for um, a total colectomy compared with a loop ileostomy. And, um, and the, the raw mortality and the adjusted mortality 
So that being said, there were not that many patients because this is not is not that often that we're taking out colons or doing lupuleostomies for C. diff. So I don't think we had answered the question yet. I think that there's still a caution that needs to be taken with somebody that is so sick that they have one shot and one shot only. They need the colon needs to be taken out. I think that the role of lupuleostomies when you have a patient that is sick but not terribly sick that is not responding. Um, Pittsburgh also uses this procedure for recurrences. Um, uh, the problem is after you treat it and you have isolated the colon, you have to come up with something before you hook them back up because you, when once you reverse that um, that ostomy, um, you could have a recurrence and that could be really really bad for patients. And as we know, some you know people that have septic shock before and have these horrible inflammatory responses, they are more prone to have them again. So that is something that it needs to be um, uh, taken with a grain of salt and with caution. We still do them, um, but we do them in select patients. Um, as I mentioned before, um, absolute contraindications. If you have abdominal compartment syndrome, there's no business doing a lupuleostomy. If you have a, if you have a distal obstruction from prior diverticulitis, if you open the abdomen, you have a piece of bowel that is dead. There's no, don't, or perforation, no, no, obviously don't do it. Um, uh, but it's, it's just, I think, uh, a procedure in between. There is a surgeon in uh, New York that is using, because um, the, the whole point, the whole premise of doing this lupuleostomy and, in, and, giving, uh, and giving, washing the colon from the toxin and actually giving the drug in the mucosa where it's needed is, um, uh, comes from the fact that our patients have horrible ileus. So you can do rectal vancomycin all you want and PO vancomycin all you want. How do you know this is reaching when it ha- where it has to go when you have a, a colon that is that sick? And the answer to that is like, you don't. Um, so that is the premise behind lupuleostomy. So there's a surgeon uh, in New York that is uh, endoscopically placing tubes in the um, in the cecum and giving uh, vancomycin like that. And we'll see we'll see how that goes. Um, I, again, I I think that we still have a challenges and opportunities when it comes with the surgical treatment of uh, clostridium of fulminancy death. You bring up, you know, lots of really good points there. And so what do you think is going to be necessary for us to actually have a, a trial that compares now what sounds like three different techniques for treating C. diff surgically? Uh, because it seems like until you have that trial and you can look at the outcomes, the long-term outcomes for those patients, particularly the recurrence rates, that you're never going to really be able to fully answer the question. I agree. And it's not, yeah, long-term outcomes because you don't want them to recur. And then if the only thing that you're doing, the lupuleostomy is to preserve the colon, but you cannot hook them back up, then what was the point of doing it? That's one. Second, there is um, a, there is the fact that, you know, the living with an ileostomy for the rest of your life is a disease on its own. These patients present with renal failure because they get dry, nutrition is an issue, skin issues are issues. 
so yeah, it's, uh, it's not for free. Nothing in medicine is for free. So um, what I think is going to take is probably an international trial because I wonder also. So the, so the funny thing about CDF, I went to Latin America to talk about, I work with the Pan-American Trauma Society as well. So I have the opportunity to talk in uh, Latin America in seven countries, in several countries and to teach and to collaborate with them. And in some places, they they don't even measure C. diff, so they don't think they have a problem. Um, in one of those hospitals, they're like, "Oh, we have no problem with C. diff. I don't. We don't understand why Americans have so much problem." And they started measuring, and are like, "Oh, actually, we do. All these patients that are dying from SIRS actually have C. diff." So I think um, I think it's a tricky. But what is I think the first question to answer to really really answer the question and do an appropriate trial, we probably we're gonna have to tap to international resources and see what people are doing in other countries. Um, but in order for that to happen, there needs to be awareness as well. As well, if you don't think you have a CDF problem but you're not measuring, maybe you do have it. You just don't know it. And um, and that is um, I think another challenge and opportunity. So you've uh, raised a lot of things for us to think about. If there was uh, two or three take-homes that you would like all listening to uh, take away, what would they be? It would be um, it, when you have uh, Clostridium difficile disease, even though your patient looks a little bit sick and not terribly sick, um, probably a good idea to have a surgeon around. So um, a, if surgery is necessary, is considered early. Second, um, a, whether it be C. diff or any other disease, multi-professional, uh, multidisciplinary collaboration is the best way that we can take these patients that um, look like they're not going to make it into have a, um, a meaningful change in outcomes. Um, and the last one is like research is hard and answering these questions uh, and especially clinical research where convincing people that of doing something that they're not very sure of is really hard. But I think you're right. Until um, those studies are made, uh, there's really not. It's the only way that we have uh, right now to actually answer a um, clinical question. Thank you so much for those points and taking the time out today to talk with me. Uh, this concludes another edition of Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. This podcast is supported by an unrestricted educational grant provided by Merck and Company, Incorporated. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. 
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.